The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome, everybody. So nice to see people here tonight. If you haven't heard, we have our special beloved teachers, Kamala Masters and Stephen Armstrong, speaking this evening. They've just finished their annual TCBC, the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective Retreat that they've been doing now. I think the 17th year they've led this retreat. A long time. So you're probably in your 40s now. You're so kind. Deluded, but kind. No, I apologize. I wasn't listening. title and the topic of the talk, which is about six months away. And, and uh, so he wants to know what I'm going to be talking about six months later. And of course, I never know. But, you know, I could always say, oh, it's going to be about the Dharma. And it always <laughs> is. But uh, that's often not specific enough. Well, at the time he asked this time, I was um, uh, just teaching a retreat with um, a Burmese man that lives in San Jose after a year, a former monk who was a monk in Burma when I was there. And um, we were uh, teaching a course on a retreat on the, uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. And, you know, it's a pretty basic teaching of the Buddha, the Noble Eightfold Path. And so I invited him to, to co-teach with me. And he launched into a series of talks that, about the Eightfold Path that I never heard. And I thought, where have I been? Or so I tried to remember what he was talking about, and this is what I can remember. <laughs> but I'm going to expand on, on this a little bit and see if I can uh, say something that you haven't heard before. <laughs> you know the 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 teachings of the Buddha and the Buddha's teaching. Um, the Buddha was concerned about suffering and the end of suffering. And when I was younger and uh, just starting Dharma practice and, and, and retreats, suffering sounded like such a... Uh, uh, I couldn't open to it. I couldn't really get it. I couldn't really admit that I was suffering because my conditioning was... If I'm suffering, I'm a failure. I, I, I'm, I can't cut it. I can't make it. There's something wrong with me if I'm suffering. And so I didn't get it. I just didn't kind of buy into, you know, when you're 26 and you're just full of it. <laughs> you 
don't think you're suffering. No. But later, I began to understand what suffering is. And uh, the Buddha was, was very uh, clear and consistent in his teachings that he was addressing the causes of people's pain, suffering, discontentment, insecurity, anxiety, depression, fear, jealousy, envy, impatience, boredom, sleepiness, doubt, questioning, worrying, wondering, bewilderment. Now, do any of you have any of those experiences? (laughs) Then the Buddha has something for you. And because those are all levels of suffering, all levels of what is called dukkha, where things are not okay somehow. And uh, while some of some suffering is very gross, obvious, sometimes physical or emotional, that's just undeniable, very, very subtle suffering or dukkha in the form of impatience or anxiety or uncertainty or anticipation or frustration, much subtler that we would hardly call suffering, but they certainly are dukkha because they take us out of the present moment. So the Buddha was teaching about the fact of dukkha, and the fact of dukkha is the first of the Four Noble Truths, which the Buddha taught as a crisp encoding of what he realized, what he understood. And through his investigation of his own body and mind experience, he realized that all of this suffering, all of this dukkha, is caused by clinging, caused by holding on, caused by craving, caused by being identified with body, mind, environment, others, uh, and that this is the source of all of our craving, is the source of our discontent and our unhappiness, that which makes us unhappy. Now, think with me for a minute. I, I grew up with the assumption that if I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy. Does that make sense? If you get what you want, you want a new car, you want a better job, you want a better relationship, you want... If you can get what you want, then you'll be happy. Because we spend a lot of our time pursuing things that we want. And we do that because we think it'll make us happy. Well, the Buddha said, wrong. The very pursuit, the very craving, the very seeking for anything is the, is the source of the discontentment, the unsatisfactoriness, or the, the dukkha, if you will. Hmm, kind of counterintuitive, really. And some of the Buddhist teaching is not obvious. So he said, well, there's this dukkha, and it's caused by craving, contrary to your uh, childhood conditioning. And it is possible to reach, to discover, to realize the end of this craving, and therefore the end of this dukkha. If he just said, hey, there's there's dukkha, and it's caused by craving, good luck. <laughs> We'd be kind of stuck, like, uh, yeah, and now what do I do? But he said, oh, hey, there is an end. You know, you, 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 you can find the end. It's, it's possible. And the fourth noble truth is the path to be developed to realize the end of dukkha. That's the topic of the talk tonight. The path to be, re- to be developed to realize the end of dukkha. Well, as I mentioned, it's very gross and it's very subtle levels of dukkha. And the grossest forms are when we are uh, speaking and acting in a way that causes ourselves or others harm or when others are speaking and acting in such a way as to cause us harm. And 
all you have to do is look through the headlines of the newspaper and you see that level of dukkha. It's everywhere. That's what the news is. is a catalog, a daily catalog of the grossest forms of suffering. So the Buddha said, hey, the, the easiest way to get a handle on that level of suffering, that level of stress, that level of dissatisfaction in your life, is to watch your speech, watch your behavior. You know, behave yourself. You know, don't don't speak carelessly because you get yourself in some hot water, or you'll get others in a reactive uh, space. Then you got to deal with them. So it seems pretty easy. You know, purify your speech and behavior. Keep keep the keep the bad influences out of them, and you have a better chance of having harmonious relationships. But you know what? Even if you're careful of how you speak and how you act in relationship to others, you might not be saying what you really are thinking. And so your mind can be quite obsessed. So he said, well, just watching your speech and behavior is not adequate for dealing with the obsessive suffering of the mind. But have something else stronger stronger practice, subtler practice. And this is the uh, development of awareness of the present moment so that you're not lost in obsessing about the past, about the future, about things that don't exist. This is the second training of the Eightfold Path, development of mindfulness to the extent that you get some uh, samadhi or concentration, collectedness of mind. The third training of the Eightfold Path is the development of wisdom. Because even if you watch your speech and watch your behavior so that you can live in harmony, and you watch your mind so that you're not living in an obsessive turmoil, sometimes conditions just land in your lap that are just very difficult to deal with. And if you are not careful, then these sources of suffering, these defilements, will erupt and you'll be uh, at least disturbed. So he said, well, we need something more powerful than watching your intention and more powerful than watching your mind. What could that be? Well, you have to look at your understanding. How you understand the experiences of life. Because if you understand them wrongly, they will forever be a source of suffering. Huh. So that means we have to look at and purify how we understand our experience. Well, this is the most subtle uh, of the practices. This is the practice of Vipassana, to, to really deeply understand the way things are, both in relationship to one another and in their inherent thingness, if there is any. So that's really what I want to be talking about tonight. All of the Eightfold Path. I want to be talking about how we need, oh, how to understand things correctly, or how our understanding conditions how we will live, how we will practice, what we will suffer. The Buddha said that all Buddhas teach. Do good, avoid evil, develop your mind. Do good, avoid evil, develop your mind. Before we start practice, before we have any awakening uh, of suffering and compassion for ourselves or awareness or a sense of a spiritual life, we can live a very deeply or heavily conditioned life, pretty insensitive to ourselves and others, and just living out our conditioning as uh, kind of 
from a survival of the fittest mentality. And uh, while we here in Minneapolis, certainly we here in this hall, don't think that we're living like that, it's rampant in the world where people are suffering uh, living at the at a very brutal, uh, very uh, just inhuman uh, level uh, in treating one another, and uh, it, it, it's just it's just really pervasive in the world. What is it, the Buddha said, that is going to catch the attention? of that kind of conditioned mind. And he said, you know, if you teach people that if you're bad, if you harm others, you're going to be punished. You're going to be, you're going to be hurt in, a, in return. We're, we're, we as a society are going to uh, take care of you. We're, we're going to see that you don't do that anymore. And it's this fear of punishment this fear of wrongdoing that begins to get that mind to start looking and paying attention. Because the Buddha, Buddha, the Buddha addressed and taught the whole spectrum of society, from the very, you know, criminal to the very enlightened. And so he started with, you know how to you know, address and how to begin to tame a mind that's willing to um, be quite brutal. And he said that uh, you know, if you can get that mind to be concerned about its own pain, be concerned about its own pain, then, you begin, then you've got uh, uh, ears that are, are willing to listen a mind that's willing to listen. And so the first teaching is, about, is, is often about the law of karma. You know, that the actions that you perform plant a seed within the mind stream that is going to bear fruit in experience of a similar flavor. If your actions come from a, uh, a painful place, causing pain to yourself or others, you can be sure that the fruit of that is going to be painful to you. And if you fear pain, as all beings do, then you begin to pay attention. And so it's this kind of fear of pain and this kind of um, beginning to watch, take, to observe, how your speech and actions affect yourself and others. That is the first glimmer of a spiritual life in, in a heavily conditioned mind. So this is the first level of the, uh, or the first stage of Eightfold Path uh, practice, is uh, inculcating or teaching or beginning to have some faith in the law of karma some faith that, or some sense that uh, the law of karma is valid, or that there's something to it, and I better pay attention. I better pay attention to what I'm doing, what I'm saying, and where I'm coming from, because uh, there's going to be consequences based on that. So when you have that initial fear of retributive pain, or punishment by legal authorities, or just difficulty in personal, interpersonal relationships because of carelessness. When you start paying attention, then you start planning, you start thinking, you're much more careful about what you say, when you say it, what you do, when you do it. You start to pay attention. This is mindfulness. This is the level of mindfulness that is conditioned at this first stage of Eightfold Path practice. This is called the, the householder's uh, practice. Now, 
it doesn't mean that all householders are kind of stuck at this level of equal path practice, but this is where we start. And so not only our understanding of karma, but our faith in karma causes us to activate the other eightfold path factors, thought, thinking about karma, and our effort, our awareness, our uh, speech, and, and the other path factors are influenced by our faith in the law of karma. Most of us are beyond that stage. We're, we we know that. We're, we're paying attention. Not that we never make a mistake, but we're paying attention. And, but you know, sometimes we slip, and you know. And in fact, many of us not only just have faith in the law of karma, we believe in the law of karma. And when you believe in the law of karma, this is an uh, an additional step or a, or a greater commitment, really, to awakening. And when we believe in the law of karma, we not only act in such a way as to avoid unpleasant, painful results, but we proactively seek to perform actions which lead to pleasant results. Because, hey, if you do something unskillful and it causes pain, then if you do something skillful, it causes pleasure. So we all want pleasure of one sort or another. Physical pleasure, mental pleasure, emotional pleasure, economic pleasure, social pleasure, psychological pleasure. We want that kind of experience. And so the law of karma says, well, if you want that kind of experience, then be nice. Be kind. Be generous. Be patient. Be truthful. Be uh, moral, if you will. Be uh, uh, careful in your relationships. Pay attention to your mind. You might recognize that list as uh, the paramis. The paramis are the forces of purity in the mind, the forces of perfection. When the mind is free of any form of uh, attachment, aversion, or delusion, then we can proactively cultivate those states of mind. The paramis, the ten paramis, are generosity, uh, ethical conduct, living in harmony, renunciation, letting go of what is no longer needed, or letting go in order to uh, make space, really, for others, or to support others. Uh, wisdom, patience, loving kindness, non-reactivity of, of equanimity. These are all wholesome states of mind which we can cultivate through practice. But to cultivate these states of mind through practice, you have to have this belief in law of karma, and you have to make appropriate effort in thinking about what to do, how to practice, how to develop patience, how to develop generosity, how to develop any of these wholesome states of mind. So it requires a more refined understanding and attention to your thoughts and to your energy and to your awareness because now you're looking for opportunities to practice any of these wholesome practices that, that cultivate the mind. So this is the second level, if you will, of practicing the Eightfold Path, where we, it's called the basic level, where we are not only acting so as to avoid pain, but we're acting so as to uh, perform wholesome actions to, to live a more comfortable, pleasant life and to have uh, a better prospect for the future. That's the second level of practicing the Eightfold Path. The third level, and, and many of us are there. Many, many of us certainly are actively cultivating the wholesome states of mind because it feels good. First of all, it feels good. And the result is beneficial. It's pleasant. So we do that. There's a third level of the third stage, a third level of commitment to the Eightfold Path. And this is called the preparatory path. Now, you know, in the, in the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha said, oh, the first noble truth is, the second noble truth, the third noble truth, the fourth noble truth, 
The fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Noble Path. Well, these first two stages of path practice, not yet noble. Yeah, kind of like basic. Well, it's householders. It's initial and basic. And even the third stage is not yet noble. It's called the preparatory. It's preparing you for noble path practice. And the third stage, or the third level of commitment of Eightfold Path Practice is when you understand the law of karma. You understand the law of cause and effect. You understand that when you plant this seed, you get this fruit. You plant an apple tree, or an apple seed, you get an apple tree, and eventually an apple fruit. Same with bananas and other things. Although, probably not many of us have taken a seed, stuck it in the ground, seen that tree grow to produce that fruit, to be able to say for ourselves, I can confirm this because I saw it for myself. But nevertheless, we still believe it. We believe in the law of seed propagation. We believe in the law of seasonal activity. We believe in the law of laws of physics and chemistry and biology. Karma is a law like that. It is a law, it's an articulation of what has been observed by those who've been able to pay attention and understand what they see in the unfolding of the mind. So it's not like somebody made it up. The Buddha didn't make up the law of karma. You know, no, 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 no human made it up. But those who have practiced, paid careful attention to the law, to actions and reactions, have been able to articulate, oh, this is what happens. And it's been articulated as a law of karma. It's a law unto itself. At the third stage of, or the third level of commitment to Eightfold Path practice, we're actually beginning to practice uh, insight practice. And our understanding of cause and effect, while it's still the law of karma, we begin to see that this body and this mind in this package are talking to each other. They're talking to each other. The mind says this, the body does that. The body does this, the mind does that. And, in fact, as you pay careful attention, you see that the body and mind are talking to each other and conditioning each other all the time. And, in fact, that's all that's going on here, is the mind that knows is knowing something about the body or mind in every moment. Something is being known. Something is being known. Sounds right now are being known. Words are being understood. Sensations in the body, you may be comfortable or uncomfortable, you can sit here forever, half an hour or an hour. Oh, discomfort being known. Interest is being known. Boredom is being known. Is there anything else going on there? Well, of course we think so. But actually, as we practice Vipassana practice, what we begin to see is that's all that's happening. And what is being known is changing all the time. It's conditioned. You know, when the fans when the fans go, we feel cooler. When we feel cooler, we feel comfortable. When we feel comfortable, the mind is happy. Turn off the fans, turn off the air conditioner. Wouldn't take long before the mind is not so happy. Why? Well, because the temperature rises, body gets hot, the heat is uncomfortable, the mind gets unhappy. It's conditioning. You know what? In all of that, there's nothing personal. It's not your fault, it's not your problem, and you can't do anything about it. Except turn off the air conditioner. <laughs> but it just happens. You know, it just happens. And it would happen to every one of us in this room. Well, when we begin to understand this, we see that this sense of self that we've been so concerned about in our karmic actions, well, there isn't one. You know, it's all cause and effect. Conditions, internal, external, mental, physical, conditioning, experience. Whatever comes up in the mind conditions the next moment's experience. We begin to see through this illusion of this body is mine. 
this mind is mine. Well, this is a much more refined understanding. And to reach this understanding, it takes a very continuous energy, which is one of the Eightfold Path Factors. It takes a very precise and subtle awareness, also one of the Eightfold Path Factors. It takes a continuity of awareness to mm, clear the mind of defilement so that you can see clearly and really see what is going on here. And this is samadhi, which is a reflection of the continuity of mindfulness. So this level of eightfold path practice is much more subtle, much more continuous, and it rests on the right view of this body and mind. Not a belief, not a faith in karma, not a belief in karma, but a direct observation of this body and mind. I know Mark is teaching, Mark and others here are teaching you mindfulness and a basic mindfulness instruction. And if you keep practicing, this is where you'll be going. You'll be coming to experience this kind of terrain and understanding of the body and mind. This kind of practice, not yet noble. Not yet noble. It's when the Pasana practice reaches some level of maturity. And when we really have clarified our understanding, when we really uh, picked through all of our misunderstandings about how things are in the world, in the body, in the mind, in our relationships, in the environment, we've, we've kind of sifted through all our beliefs and realized those that are not accurate and therefore lead to suffering or dukkha and those that are true can lead to the end of dukkha. Well, sounds like a big job. And frankly, it is. <laughs> but it can be done. The Buddha left very specific instructions of how to practice insight, vipassana, so as to purify your understanding. Mindfulness will purify your mind, but vipassana is needed to purify your understanding. And when Vipassana matures to a, a, a very high degree, then it is possible to realize what is called the unconditioned. The unconditioned is, in, in lay language, is when you become enlightened or you become, uh, you, you access Nibbana or you begin to, you realize the unconditioned, that which is not conditioned by the body or mind or environment or anything. That understanding is liberating. It frees the mind from some tendencies and gradually purifies the mind uh, even more. Once the mind realizes Nibbana, and once the mind accesses Nibbana, the unconditioned, there is the understanding or the belief in a entity within this process, that belief is uprooted from the mind. Then you understand, oh, there really is, this body and this mind is not self. It's not me. I am not in here. It is not mine. Well, this is, again, a kind of counterintuitive. It certainly feels like this is my body and this is my mind. But, Buddha said, those understandings condition suffering. And if you practice Vipassana successfully, you will realize that's a misunderstanding. And you'll realize the understanding that leads to the end of that suffering. And this is the understanding of the unconditioned. At that point, you can begin practicing the noble hateful path. Because they say, those whose minds have realized the unconditioned or Nibbana, have become noble. They've really ennobled their life. They've become, uh, they not kind of personally, but the minds have been ennobled and freed from the tendencies of uh, carelessness, brutality, obsessions, and they're stuck to, they're on a path, the noble path, then to, to finish, finish the work, I should say, of uh, purifying the mind, purifying your understanding. That's the, uh, fourth 
level of commitment to Eightfold Path practice. Lucky for us, it's a gradual path. You start where you're at. You don't have to start at the other end or at the beginning. You start where you're at. And to even hear the Dharma and resonate with it, already you have some understanding. You know, certainly faith in karma, probably belief in karma, and most of you are also already practicing Vipassana. So you just have two stages to go. Perfect your Vipassana, get to nobility, finish the job. Hey, it can be done. Now, my wife is going to going to tell you how. <laughs> well, we're just going to... Thank you. <laughs> my path isn't finished yet, so when I finish the path, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, we were going to take this time period to open the floor for some questions about your practice and we really want to hear from you where you're at and how we can respond to you and where you're at on your path right now. So let's do that. How about you? Um, one thing that's been hard with the idea of karma is think of the past. I, I think in my practice it's just only been about a year now. I immediately see it day to day. I breathe it and see its effects. And it is, there's no need to really even believe it. That's, that's beyond words. But I do think that one thing that really hangs me up sometimes in this society, we have seen very recently that a justice is not always equally meted out by the law of the land. Um, and without getting into the, the politics, I mean, that is for me, well, some of it might be condition, conditioning to see it, it still in many ways exists. And it is difficult, it almost feels selfish as I move forward to live in a world that almost is starting to gain a buoyancy of karma, a real, it almost as if it didn't exist when I still move into a world when I, if I click on the Huffington Post or I, uh, you know, or, or the idea that the karma doesn't seem to be equal between the humans and the animals of the Gulf Coast. I just wonder how, especially early in practice, when you constantly seem to, I mean, I'm trying to tune that out for the sole purposes of just focusing on, on the breath. But, it is, it is difficult, especially amongst my peers who don't practice my path, to try to come up with reasoning why I get to live in this world which is starting to create a big smile across my face most of the time, uh, while I still see immense amount of suffering and injustice on higher one of the things that's helpful to understand about karma and to take in, you've taken in and expressed about where you are at in relationship to the world and you see where the world's at. And there are many, many levels in between and even beyond that, is that karma is imponderable. It's so unfathomable that we, we really can't figure it out. The Buddha said, it is one of the four imponderables, and if you think about it, it would make your head explode. It's so, it's so beyond our reckoning. And what helps me is to know that I can do what I can in this little circle that I'm working in. If I think about it in too big of a, a sense, it gets overwhelming, and then I'm helpless. And then I'm, all I'm doing is using a lot of energy thinking about that helplessness and how unfair it is and what about the fish in the Gulf Coast and the people along there and all about that. And then we're in a place of not being able to really be effective in the world. And 
just those people, our families and the uh, community right around us. So I tend to go to the place where I feel that I can have some help. I can benefit those around me. And it can come from a place of a deep balance towards life, kind of a, a non-reactivity. Um, in, in this retreat we just did, we were practicing almost every day equanimity. And that kind of uh, inclining of the mind towards non-reactivity because of the very things that you're talking about. Because it is really difficult to face what we face in our own communities, in our own families, and in the world. So inclining the mind towards having a spacious balance towards all that's happening immediately around us, and if we're faced with it even further, and especially developing equanimity about many places we've already reacted inside. And this is a place I think is, is so key to our being effective and beneficial in the world. Um, we often are so pulled out by what's happening in the world that we, we really don't see where we're coming from. We don't see that we're upset, that we're reactive, that we're weakened by all of that. So to bring equanimity to our own hearts and minds, to be able to see that we can develop towards that place where we've been reactive, we can bring a spacious, gentle balance to that that allows that, that reactivity inside to dissipate and to go towards more of a spaciousness so that we can be helpful to others. So it's, it's really opening to what's happening out there, understanding that this is how it is, opening what's happening in our, to what's happening in our own hearts and understanding deeply this is how it is in my own heart. And then, as Steve was just saying, knowing what the unwholesome is and then inclining towards the wholesome, really taking the energy and saying, may my heart be balanced and open able to accept what's going on so that I can be of benefit. So, anyway, there it is. Just as you are affected and conditioned by the, not only you, but all of us are conditioned and affected by the injustice that we see in the world, if you practice and you learn to calm your mind and to act in a way that causes harmony and to develop an understanding, others will be conditioned and affected by you. Mm -hmm. It isn't only a one-way street where you're getting impacted negatively by those actions. If you develop your mind and you develop your sensitivity and awareness in life, uh, others will be affected and conditioned by you. It works both ways. That's why you can sit still for years in a cave or in this room and, and, and develop your practice. And even if you don't go out and write any letters to the editor, or go, no, none of that, you still have a major effect on uh, the conditions in the world. There's the question back there. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Got a chicken and egg question, or a chicken and egg dilemma, and that is, uh, how does one uh, not put on a pedestal or a something uh, thinking that you're going to achieve the whole practice of, of of being aware of mindfulness? In other words, uh, I lose my train of reference. This is so broad. Um, my my tendency is that uh, when I meditate, I can many times see, aha, that's my mind reacting. But in my day-to-day -day life, and I'm not meditating, it isn't quite that clean. It's actually kind of a cage match from anything else. And, and so there's an interplay, whether I like it or not, between my mind and my awareness of what I'm doing. And, it, and the borderline gets pretty great. And so I, I find myself needing encouragement to feel like at least I'm doing something. But at the same token, that 
me setting up that encouragement can also be sort of idolizing or putting on a pedestal that whole process. So there's kind of a delicate chicken and egg relationship here when in just more days day to day practice when I'm aware of things happening just because I don't have the total awareness to say, aha, this is my mind behaving in this particular way. So, does that make sense? I kind of got it. <laughs> or I, I thought of something to say in response. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it may sound like what Manindra used to do. Manindra was a teacher that we had uh, many years ago, a fellow from India. You could ask him any question, he would answer whatever he wanted. <laughs> because it's all the Dharma anyway. <laughs> and and if, if it wasn't quite exactly what you asked, if you listen long enough, he'll get to it. <laughs> you might have to listen for several hours. <laughs> and he was known to do that, just to just begin talking and talk until there was nobody left in their room. <laughs> and then he was done. But, uh, but I think it's, I think when we, when we start uh, mindfulness practice or Dharma practice, and we, we, we hear about the possibilities of awareness, uh, uh, and, and liberation and anything else in between and just the benefits of practicing awareness or meditation we hear about it and somehow some part of us uh, gets lit up it's like oh yeah okay, yeah that, that sounds good or somehow we want to head in that direction the trick is just as you acknowledge how to have an aspiration Meaning, how to keep moving in that direction without grabbing onto it as a goal and being unhappy and dissatisfied if you're not there yet. I mean, that, that's, that's the issue, isn't it? It's like we hear about the possibilities. You know what? Nibbana is possible. Everybody in this room, you want to experience Nibbana? You want to realize Nibbana? It's possible. Great. Tomorrow? No. No. It, it takes something else. But aspiration is a directing of the mind rather than a grasping of a goal you grasp a goal you're going to suffer because then you're going to be comparing yourself or your personal experience to what you think the goal is oh the goal is no suffering the goal is being peaceful the goal is being calm the goal is being whatever and I'm not that bummer don't, don't, don't grasp a goal but instead get clear on the direction you're moving because in any moment in any moment that you come to, you can realign yourself with that direction. And that's developing the path. Anybody over here have a question? You don't have to answer ask over there. If you don't have questions for us, we have questions for you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> between having an aspiration which is kind of like knowing the direction to the goal right it's knowing that but not grasping the goal you you hang on to the goal in your mind and you're going to be comparing yourself your person your present experience with what you think the goal is and you're always going to be less than perfect so you suffer so don't grasp the goal but when you know that the direction you want to go is towards more calmness, more awareness, more patience, more generosity, more connectedness, more all those qualities, in any moment that you come to and realize, I'm in a real state, you can realign yourself to being a little more patient, a little calmer, a little less reactive, a little more loving. A little that's developing the path. That's all you can do. In that moment, that's all you can do. You can't skip over everything and get the goal, but you can take the next step on the path, which is a little more calm, a little more patient, a little more loving, a little more understanding. And that's just realigning yourself with the direction you want to go. Is that what you want to hear? Don't be shy. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, I think of the first one you talked about at the end, and this is 
it feels painful to let go, but after letting go, it really feels so relieving. You know, I think we're coming to, it's 8.30, so it's time to close. Yeah. Is it time to close? Yeah, maybe tackle one more question if you guys have the answer. Sure. Yeah. There is one more. Yeah. One more question. Be the one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this whole aspect of letting go has been has been uh, you know, kind of a uh, landmark for me to uh, and and like you said something about the whole aspect of creating trust in the letting go that people are talking about. Faith and trust in the letting go. Something on your mind? No. You know, it is so counterintuitive to think, if I let go of my wants, my needs, my friendships, or, you know, some friends or some activities, it's hard to believe that we're going to feel better. We're going to be happier. Because... You know, the mind is insatiably hungry for contact. Physical contact, mental contact, social contact, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, thoughts, ideas. And so that's why multitasking is so rewarding and, and not. Because you can't get enough. You know, it's like drinking salt water to quench your thirst. You know, multitasking is just making you thirstier. So how to let go? You know, sometimes we might have to let go on trust. You know, or on faith, you know, hoping that if I let go, well, something good will happen. But you know, we have let we have all let go of so much. As I as I mentioned to the yogis that were on the retreat, <clears throat> remember when you were a little boy, when you were a little boy or you were a little girl, uh, you had this toy, you know, this bike or the ball or the doll or something that was your most favorite thing. And as soon as you get up in the morning, you played with it, and it, it was just like the source of your life, your happiness, your meaning, the value in life. And for, you know, a week, a month, a year, or longer, where is that thing now? In the cellar, <laughs> or in the attic, or, or in the dump. And somehow, we let go of it. We didn't even know that we let go, and it wasn't even painful. Letting go is like that. But you can't let go of what you don't know you're holding on to. You don't know you're holding on? You're not going to let go. When I first started, <clears throat> when I first started Dharma practice, uh, I, I had gone to university back in the 60s when, uh, and I was studying engineering, when all of the calculations were done longhand with the slide rule and in your mind, a lot of multiplication and division, it's just all done in your head. No handheld computers or calculators back then. And, you know, so I'd spent years doing advanced mathematics, and my mind was like just full of numbers crunching. So I went to a retreat, and, you know, when you try to pay attention to your mind, you pay attention to your breath, you know, breathing in, breathing out, your mind wanders off into some fantasy. Well, my mind wandered off into multiplying out four and five digit numbers in my head trying to, you know, and I'd come to going and I'd say, uh, do I need to be doing this now? And I could let go, you know. I didn't know my mind was doing that. It was doing it, that's what it did in its discretionary time. It's like, but you don't know that until you start paying attention. So you have to start practicing mindfulness. When you start practicing mindfulness, you're going to find out what you've been doing with your discretionary time. <laughs> and it isn't pretty. We have not been making best use of our discretionary time. But that's where we begin. And we let go. And when we let go, the, the more you let go, the more disk space you have. You know, it's like you got you got space in the mind to do other things. Like, but don't. <laughs> you think, wow, I've got freed up all this empty disk space. i got all this time. Don't pick up something else. My God, let it go, let it go. Just find the next, the next subtlest thing that you've been holding on to. Let go of that. You've got a lifetime of letting go ahead of you, but it's increasing freedom. It's Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah says, you know, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. 
You let go completely, you have complete peace and freedom. May it be so for all of you. <laughs> Quickly. Thank you so much, Kamala. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.